Let's join together and let's pray. Father God, we've just been singing of your provision for us. Uh, We believe that you give us everything that we need. And we thank you for your word, that wonderful way in which you Uh, show yourself to us, reveal yourself, your word that that is food to us, that nurtures us. Lord, we pray that today, in these next few minutes, we would feed on you, that we would pay attention to to your word, what you show us of yourself and ourselves, and that we would leave here strengthened because of it. Amen. Amen. I used to think that Christianity was uh, a pretty boring affair, Um, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Um, Particularly when I was younger, I I thought that way. I guess I came to that conclusion because it it seemed to me that Christianity was was synonymous with a very conservative way of life. It seemed that never doing anything wrong was much more important than energetically living and doing doing right. It was a world of of tray bakes and and garden centers, of classical music, songs of praise. It was a world in which a, a young Christian like me, it seemed the best that I could aspire to is that one day I would turn into a really nice guy. I thought that's what God wanted for me, that over the years he, he wanted to, to help me lose all my rough edges, to help me adopt some good manners, get all my passions under control, and end up a nice, a really nice guy. That's what it seemed to me to be all about. After all, Jesus, I thought, he wants us to be remade in the image of his own lovely son, gentle Jesus meek and mild. That's how I thought about Christianity for a long time, and maybe maybe a lot of us still do. But all of this has changed for me. Uh, I can't really trace how long that change has been working itself out in my life. It's changed not since I've, I didn't run away from Christian faith. It, this has changed for me since I, I started to read the Bible, or probably more accurately, started to take the Bible a little more seriously. Because I, reading the Bible, taking it seriously, I began to encounter people like Abraham and Moses, people like Peter and Paul, and people like Jesus. And it turns out that, that God's hopes for me are not what I'd always imagined they maybe were. His greatest desire for me and for you is not that we turn out really nice people. He calls us to something far, far more than that, far more energetic, far more full of passion. He calls us to lives saturated with his presence. 
He wants us to live like Jesus. The real Jesus, not gentle Jesus, meek and mild. If you've been around over the summer, uh, and very, very likely most of us haven't been here for, for all of the services over the summer, but if you've been around even for some of those, you'll know that we've been thinking together on the life of David. And when you, you look at the, the biblical account of the life of David, you see there one of these energetic, passionate, dynamic lives that I'm talking about here. Uh, we've tried to take seriously the, the biblical revelation as it talks about David, 1 Samuel 1 and 2. And we soon realize that David doesn't live in an ivory tower in a churchy subculture. That's not who David is. He doesn't spend his life at midweek meetings drinking cups of tea. He spends his life in all sorts of contexts that we have thought about. When you read, read David's life, you read a life as energetic and as full as, of passion as any human life you could imagine. So David, I think, certainly to me, ends up feeling very different than that model of the evangelical subculture that I grew up with. He's energetic, he's edgy, sometimes he's downright dangerous. And yet, the biblical writer talks about him in glowing terms. The biblical writer talks about David as a man after God's own heart. Folks, I thought this morning as we come to an end of our, our studies in the life of David, it might be worth thinking about this for a few minutes together. What is it about David that allows the biblical writer to call him the man after God's own heart? It's certainly not that he was perfect. Uh, one occasion of adultery, at least one of murder, lots of other significant sins along the way. David's not the sort of guy we'd easily welcome into church. Uh, if somebody with that kind of track record appeared and we were aware of it, I don't think we'd be in a hurry to say, oh yeah, that's lovely, you're clearly a man after God's own heart. So it's not, it's not David's morality that allows the biblical writer to speak about him in these terms. David's not gentle Jesus or gentle David, meek and mild, the really nice guy of our churchy subculture. There's something different about David, something much, much more. As I've preached these David stories and uh, become more and more familiar with this part of God's word, I've come to the conclusion that what's distinctive about David is that his life is entirely flooded with the presence of God. He's always open to what God's doing in his life. And I think that's what allows the biblical writer to call him the man after God's own heart. This is the kind of life that pleases God. Think with me for a second about some of the stuff we've learned this summer and just see how, how prevalent God is in David's life. We learned that David was chosen by God. Uh, as a young man, he trusted God entirely to the extent that he could go and, and face a, a giant when all others in the nation uh, were afraid. He allowed God to encourage him uh, through his friend, in this case, Jonathan. 
He learned from God during the hard times, during that, that spell that he spent a decade or so living in the wilderness. He allowed God to intervene. Do you remember the story where he's on his way to kill Nabal? And God sends Abigail and David halts in his tracks, prevented from another murder. Whenever he was a, a, made a king, he worshipped God. He worshipped with such, such energy that, that some people thought it was over the top too much. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, and we thought about this a couple of weeks ago, at just that moment when God seems to be absent from his life, as soon as he's confronted with his sin, he confesses. Again, his life is centered on God. So whenever you take these, these stories and these incidents, which, which portray David as a very human, very ordinary, very broken sort of a guy, the one thing that we discover, we, we find a man whose life's absolutely saturated with the presence of God. doesn't matter for David whether he's winning or whether he's losing, whether he's in danger or whether he's secure. His life is always oriented back towards God. Folks, I think this is what the Bible is talking about. This is what it means for David to be a man after God's own heart. And this is what God wants for us. He wants us to live more and more and more of our lives open to him. Our successes and our failures. Our best moments and motives and our, our biggest failings where we need forgiveness most of all. All of this before God. Look with me for a second at Psalm 18. It's the, the passage that we read this morning. Keep your finger in Psalm 18 and then flick back with me to 2 Samuel chapter 22. You'll find that on page 328. By the time we get to 2 Samuel 22, the biblical writer is coming to the end of his account of the life of David. So he has to work out, well, how do I finish this? This, this dramatic life, I've given 30 or more chapters to talking about David. How, how do I bring this to a conclusion? What, what's a fitting way to end this? So what the, the writer chooses to do is he chooses to use one of David's own psalms he throws it into the narrative there. So if you look, chapter 22 of Second Samuel is Psalm 18. Lock, stock, and barrel dropped into the middle of the biblical text. Keep it open there at, at Second Samuel um, 22. So the biblical writer has, has looked across all of the Psalms that David's written I'm imagining a little here. And he said to himself, well, which of these is most characteristic of David as a whole? 
Which one captures a little of who David is, or, or most of who David is? And this is the psalm that he's chosen. Psalm 18. If you go back there where you had your finger to Psalm 18, we'll work from that text rather than from the, the second Samuel. Uh, let's have a look at this psalm and see what it is about it that allows it to become such a, 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 an epitaph for David's life. We're just going to look at a couple of chunks together. Look at verse 1. Sorry, verses 2 to 3. And it's the bit that we, we read earlier in our service. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. The Lord is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my savior. It's incredible what David does here. He loads these opening verses. I counted eight different metaphors where he talks about God's protection over him. Rock, fortress, deliverer, shield, salvation, stronghold, refuge, savior. Do you think David trusts God? Do you think he knows he's safe? Absolutely. And think of the life that he lived out of which he wrote this stuff. Look down to the middle of the psalm. Verse 30, it is in 2 Samuel 22. He says, With your help I can advance against a troop. With my God I can scale a wall. David's talking about overcoming the walls and the obstacles in his life. And of course, we know by now some of these difficulties that David uh, faced in his life, and they're quite considerable. We, we remember that he was the youngest in a large family. You get the sense in the narrative that he's often ignored. You know, he starts life from this position of being someone who's written off before he even starts. Then you'll remember that as a young boy, he, he looked after his dad's sheep. We can get the wrong picture of that, that idea of David as a shepherd as though it's all sort of lying around on, on uh, your back on the haystack in the sunshine. But, but it's a dangerous life because he tells us so himself. He's protecting the flock from wild animals, bears and lions. We don't have to go too much further in the narrative before David is confronting a huge giant, uh, a Philistine weapon of mass destruction, uh, a large obstacle on David's and Israel's horizon. But life doesn't ever get much easier than that for David. Once he defeats Goliath, then Saul's out to kill him. We, we noticed at least six times in the narrative where, where Saul tried to kill David. Um, even once he becomes king, we didn't study this, but Absalom, his own son, leads a rebellion against him, uh, would have killed him too, no doubt. So how does David cope with all of this? These obstacles, these, these, these massive uh, dangers that he confronts throughout his life, all this opposition. Well, he tells us, look at verse 30 again. He says, with your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. David doesn't say, oh, I can do this because I'm a military genius. I can survive and defeat my enemies because my army is bigger than theirs. No, it's all about God. With your help, 
with my God. I have to say, I love the energy of David's words here, and that's a little of what I'm trying to capture for you this morning in this, in this sermon. I, I love the way he talks about God. Normally, when we talk about God and what he does for us, they're lovely, gentle uh, words. We talk about how God loves us, and he cares for us. He blesses us, and he confronts us. And I think that's very valid, that tender language of how God is with us. But it's only part of the story. Here David uses a whole different kind of language. He uses big action verbs to talk about what God is doing. If you read this passage in the message translation, the the verse reads like this. I smash the band of marauders. I vault the highest fences. It's not tea and tray bakes and songs of praise kind of stuff. David's saying that whatever life throws at me, with God's help, I can overcome. Folks, when we look at David's life and, and when we pay attention now to this psalm uh, and we see David's life condensed in poetic form, one thing's clear. The most important thing in David's life isn't David. It's God. The most characteristic thing about David is his, his openness to God, his, his living at all every moment before God. The largest part of David's existence isn't David. It's God. Although David's eyes wander, although he falls away at time into sin, he, in the end, he's a little bit like a compass. You know when you set a, a fine-tuned compass, set it on a table, the, the needle moves a little bit, but eventually it always locks dead on true north. It might take time to get there, You can hold a compass in such a way that it doesn't point north, but in the end, left to settle, bang. That's David. He gets things wrong. He messes things up. But in the end, sets his sights and always returns to God. David is a man after God's own heart. Folks, we talk here at Kirkpatrick Memorial about following Jesus. And if we're serious about that, then, then we too will end up being men and women after God's own heart. I offer you that as an encouragement. I think there's, a, there's a, every possibility that a biblical writer writing about your life and mine could use the same language one day as we learn more and more to be men and women whose lives are are locked in on Jesus Christ. Whenever we look at David's life, I've never commended to you from this pulpit, David, as a model. Because if I encourage you to follow David, you too may well end up an adulterer, a murderer, and all these things. No, David only gives us glimpses. 
He only gives us glimpses of what a life lived for God really looks like. We instead look to Jesus. Jesus, in a way that David can only vaguely give us a hint of, Jesus shows us what it is to be a man or a woman or a boy or a girl after God's own heart. Folks, I think if we allow it, this this David story can help us, it can revitalize us in our lives of discipleship to Jesus. David reminds us, and this is what I want to, to leave with you here today, David reminds us of the energy, of the passion, of the, the comprehensiveness of a life lived fully for God. He, he lifts us out of this, this boring, this tedious world that we quite often create in our churches he lifts us out of that. He lifts us into a world where we, where we face daunting giants and where we celebrate like mad. It's a world of, of times in the desert and of fierce battle, but it's a, time of, it's a world of, of complete joy and exuberant celebration. Folks, above all, it's a world where God, the real and true and living God, is at the center If we take seriously the David story and and the others like it in the scriptures, I think we're going to be less inclined to domesticate our life with God. David reminds us that God isn't primarily interested in making us into really nice guys and really nice girls. Thank God it's much more exciting than that. Jesus talked about a life where, we, where we're always and finally focused on him. He used one of his most enduring images. And he said that this is the only way for his people to live. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We must Jesus says, remain intimately connected to him. We must learn to to cultivate a radical dependence on Jesus, this life that that David does model for us. Folks, it could well be that over the summer, Uh, as life has taken on a different form, as it's lost some of its normal structures, that we have found ourselves just wandering a little. The focus isn't quite where it is, or our our hearts and our minds have become a, a little distracted. Could I share with you and, and say that I, I too, know that experience but here we've read today and in the past weeks of a man who whose failings dwarf most of ours this guy gets it more wrong than most of us ever will and and yet God speaks so warmly of him God keeps him so much at the center of his plan for this world Could I encourage you, and myself too,
to say that we're not about becoming perfect people or even really nice people. But let's recommit ourselves to becoming energetic and passionate followers of Jesus Christ. People who are like branches of a vine, totally attached to him, like the needle on a compass, always finding our way back to him. Let's go into this year that lies ahead, looking only to Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, forgive us for the times when we have uh, reduced this life that you call us to into something uh, polite, manageable, and nice. Lord, blow all these categories apart for us. Draw us into the, the dynamic and passionate world of Scripture, the place where Jesus is our model for all things. Lord, give us the same energy uh, that Jesus had to love you and to obey you, to reach out to people in your name, to, to change the world for you. Lord, we thank you that life with you really is uh, such an exhilarating possibility. And we pray now that by your Spirit you take us broken and timid fearful and disillusioned, that you take us and, and slowly but surely restore us for this kind of a life, a life of wonderful radical dependence on Jesus Christ. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.